You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. To Prince Edward Island. It was in the month of September and it was beautiful. It was not too hot. It was not too cold. And Prince Edward Island is one of the Canadian provinces. It's kind of an island unto itself really out there. And it's just this side of Greenland. That's how far, far or Iceland. It's just that far west or east. Let me get my directions all messed up. It's that far east. And uh, it's a beautiful little island, and we enjoyed our stay there. And Deidre's sister was kind enough to basically provide our lodging for us. And so we stayed on a cabin that was about 60 yards away from the beach. And so we could go down and sit in that white sand and hear the Atlantic Ocean roll in. And it was just a wonderful, beautiful time. And whenever we're on vacation, I try to never let church become secondary to anything else while we're on vacation. So even if we're in a foreign town or city, we always will try and locate a church that we can attend on a Sunday morning. So about Friday evening or Saturday morning sometimes, I picked, sometime I picked up the yellow pages and I started looking for a church that we could attend that Sunday. And uh, on Prince Edward Island, everybody's official religion is Catholicism. Everybody's a Catholic. So the yellow pages for churches is Catholic, 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 Charismatic. Catholic, 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 Charismatic. Catholic and on it went. And finally, I found a listing for a what ended up being a Southern Baptist church, and it was right in a city there next to, right in the town next to where we were staying. I thought that's convenient. So on Saturday afternoon, we drove into the city. We wanted to locate the church so that we wouldn't end up being late because we couldn't find where it was at. So we wanted to find out where we were going. And it was just this little unpresuming sort of building. It wasn't really a church. It was more of a sort of a modular, big open modular that they were meeting in there. And so Sunday morning came, and, and I'll have to be honest with you, my expectations of church were not high. And that's not because I think that you're so much greater than any other congregation that exists, nor is it because I think I'm so much greater than any other pastor that is out there. It's just that I understand that the spirit of our day is winning our day. And I said to myself, what are the chances that I'm going to find a Christ-honoring, Bible-proclaiming, Bible-preaching church on an island that is rampant with Catholicism and a little sliver of charismatic theology thrown in there, what are the chances that I'm going to find a shining light for the gospel in the midst of a dark, dark island like this one? And then, of course, the temptation started coming into my mind. You know, I am on vacation. I don't have to go to church. I'm not going to go to hell if I don't go to church. And really, I owe it to myself. I mean, Jim, how long has it been since you slept past 5.30 or 6 o'clock on a Sunday morning? How long has it been? And you are on vacation, and God's not going to hold it against you. You deserve, you owe it to yourself to relax. And I could sleep in, and I could get up, and I could get myself a cup of coffee, and I could walk down to the beach, and I could let that warm sand go between my toes, and I could feel the midst of the ocean and listen to... The waves roll in one after another. Of course, I bring my Bible with me and I'd have church right out there, me and God, like it was meant to be. I don't have to go to church to have church, right? I can enjoy God and the beauty of His creation. I'm sure that I'm the only person who has ever struggled with any thoughts like that on a Sunday morning. 
But no temptation has overtaken me except such as is common to man. Then God is faithful and He provided a way to church and so we went. And I showed up, there was about 25 people. That's all it was. And there was one family there that made up a quarter of that population. Large family. My family made up the other quarter of that population. Six of us. And then there was the pastor and his wife and a couple more people. And it just turns out that he was an American. He was from the East Coast. Had been sent up there to plant a Southern Baptist church on the island of Prince Edward Island. And he had been there for three or four years by that time. And we really struck a chord. And we came into the service really unpresuming and sat down with our family and watched the whole service. And it was good. And he got up and he gave a wonderful, solid exposition of a passage from the book of Philippians. This guy could really preach the Word. And he did a good job. I mean, it wasn't one of those feel-good five points and here's some things that I want you to keep in mind type messages. It was really solid preaching the Word. Here is the text and here is what it means and here is how it applies to your life. One, two, three points in a poem. It was wonderful. And that's what he gave. And I was elated and not disappointed whatsoever. And I have to be honest with you, I'm, that was the very first time in any time that I've ever traveled that I've just picked a church out of the phone directory and went there and not been totally disappointed. And what happened? Because yeah, I don't look for youth ministry. I don't look for children's ministry. I don't care what the music is like. I really don't. Everything else takes a back seat to me, to the one thing, which is hearing the Word of God proclaimed. And in our day, it's a rarity. And so that's what I was looking for. That's what I wanted. That's what I saw. Turns out that my visit there with him that Sunday morning was really encouraging to him. Uh, he's on that island. He's slandered and mis uh, maligned by the Catholic priest. He's the only Protestant church in that whole neighborhood area of that island where they're at. Everybody else is Catholic or, or mainline liberal denominational. He really is a light in the midst of the darkness. And he shared with me how he's slandered by the church. He's shunned in the community. People who've got saved out of the Catholic church and have started coming to his church, they've ended up being shunned and, and slandered by the Catholic priest and others in the community and hated and it's really a dark, dark situation. And, and here's this guy who is proclaiming the Word, doing what God has called him to do in the midst of a dark situation, and he shared with me how it was tough and dry, and sometimes he labored for days and weeks without any kind of fruit visible and without any kind of encouragement. And I told him, I said, you're doing what God has called you to do. Keep up the good work. Keep preaching the Word. Don't compromise. Don't change. Do what you're doing. You're doing an excellent job. And we still have a, uh, we still communicate with each other. We still have a friendship. So every once in a while we email each other and talk with each other and I try and encourage him. And he labors in some difficult, tough situations. And friends, listen, it's at times like that that the enemy whispers into our ear, quit. Give up. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And he lies to us and he says, if you're doing God's will, there'll be no tribulation. There'll be no trials. There'll be no suffering. There'll be no difficulties. There'll be no distractions. I mean, after all, if you're in the Lord's will, doing the Lord's work and serving Him, and difficulties and trials and tribulations come along, then we're tempted to think, well, this must not be God's will. What have I done to deserve this? Why am I continuing to do this? This must not be what the Lord wants me to do if it's difficult, if it's dry, if it's, if it's a terrible situation and there's all kinds of distractions and difficulties and trials in the midst of it, I've got to find something else. I should quit this because this must not be what the Lord's doing. Those are alluring lies, but they are lies nonetheless. 
And friends, sometimes being right smack dab in the center of God's will means that that's the most difficult, the most trying, the most distressing place you can possibly be. And it can be dry. And it can be hard and arduous. I think Paul knew that. I think Barnabas knew that. I believe when they set out on their missionary journey in Acts chapter 13, as they sailed away from the mainland near Antioch on that boat, I would imagine the Apostle Paul would look back on that and the Lord Jesus' words that he had said to him on the road to Damascus would have come back into his mind over and over. I will show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. I think Paul got it. He knew, I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do. The Spirit has said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I've called them. And they left on that work. And I don't think Paul for one instance harbored any kind of misconception about the difficulties that lie ahead. And now as they leave the island of Cyprus in Acts chapter 13 and we get to verse 13, we're going to find that this next leg of their missionary journey is the most difficult of all. Acts chapter 13, we're going to notice three things about the Apostle Paul. First of all, he encounters a problem. Second, he follows his pattern. And then third, he seizes his opportunities. He encounters a problem. Look at verse 13. You should be in Acts chapter 13. Verse 13, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now remember, he's just led the proconsul of the island of Cyprus to the Lord, right before that, in the city of Paphos. With the meeting, and you remember the conflict between him and Elimus, Bar-Jesus, that magician, that Jewish false prophet, and Paul has blinded him, and now their work has been done on the island of Cyprus. They have preached Christ, they've planted churches, they've won the proconsul to the Lord, and they set sail. And they set sail a 200-mile journey across the Mediterranean Sea, and they land at Perga, which is in the area of Pamphylia, and on the back of your uh, bulletin insert is a map that shows you where it is that they sailed and where they went. You can see that there. And when they arrive in Perga of Pamphylia, Dr. Luke records for us that it is there that John Mark left them. What? John Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, Luke just reports that so matter-of-factly that it's almost disturbing. There are times in the book of Acts when we beg for more information. To be honest with you, there are times in the book of Acts when I wish I could just reach through the pages of the book of Acts and put my hands on Dr. Luke and shake some more details out of him. This is one of those times. Why did he leave? What caused him to leave? What was the issue with John Mark? You notice that Luke doesn't tell us any of that. Turn over to chapter 15. Verse 36. And we're going to look at this passage in detail in due time when we get there. Acts chapter 15, verse 36. After some days, this is after they've completed this first missionary journey, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. That's strong wording. Now what I want you to notice is how Paul viewed John Mark's departure. Luke just says to us, John Mark left and returned to Jerusalem as if, oh, this was part of the itinerary, it just so happened, and here's how it happened. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, we understand this didn't set well with Paul. Paul kept insisting, we're not taking him along. He deserted us. 
That's how he felt about it. He's a deserter. He's a defector. Barnabas, he put his hand to the plow and he looked back. And the master said he's not worthy of the kingdom. We're not taking him along again. He deserted us once and we're not putting our stock in him because he's unreliable. That's how Paul felt about it. Back in chapter 13, Luke just says, he left and returned to Jerusalem. He doesn't tell us there how Paul felt about it, but he tells us later how Paul felt about it. This is the John Mark that they brought down from Jerusalem with them. Remember John Mark's mother owned that house in Jerusalem where everybody met while Peter was in prison praying? Mary? She had the big house and the servant Rhoda. This is the John Mark, her son, that went down with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch to help out in the work there. And then when the Spirit said, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, to the work to which I've called them, they took John Mark along with them. In fact, if you look at chapter 13, verse 5, it says that they had John Mark as their helper. His job on the missionary trip was to pack and unpack supplies. It was to do dishes, do laundry, help earn a living. Whatever it was necessary to make the ministry flow, that's what John Mark did. That was his responsibility. He was the guy that worked behind the scenes doing what was necessary. He was their helper, their servant, to make sure that everything went smoothly. Now, you can't discount what he did on the ministry trip because it's invaluable. Every church, every ministry, every mission needs their John Marks. They're the men and the women who labor behind the scenes to make sure that everything runs smoothly, to make sure that the sound is set up and the chairs are set up when you show up here on a Sunday morning, to make sure that there's an Awana ministry for your children. They labor diligently, faithfully, many times without fanfare, without notice, and unfortunately sometimes without thanks or even recognition. They're the John Marks. And they're necessary. They're needful. With all of these supplies, they were able to split this workload and split the ministry load between three able-bodied men. And now John Mark bails. So now it's just Paul and Barnabas carrying everything. Now Luke doesn't tell us why he left, but you and I can employ a little sanctified speculation, a little imagination, and Luke does give us some clues. And I think that from what we read in the book of Acts and elsewhere, we can postulate a few very reasonable possibilities as to why John Mark left. Let me suggest some to you. First, it could be just that John Mark was homesick. I mean, you leave and you leave Antioch and you sail across to Cyprus. You make your way through the island. The time you get to the other side, you've been three, four, five, maybe six weeks without your mommy. You're a young man. Chrysostom, the early church father, said the lad wanted his mommy. That's why he left. Um, remember, John Mark came from a rather wealthy home. His mother had a house that was large enough for the Christians to meet for prayer in Jerusalem. It had a gate that could be locked, which meant it had a courtyard. Remember it was the servant Rhoda who came to the gate and saw Peter there after he'd been released by the angel from prison. And said, Peter's at the gate. Nobody believed her. So John Mark's mother, the fact that his father's not mentioned, indicates that maybe he, she was a widow and she maybe was a wealthy widow. She had at least a house and a courtyard and at least one servant. And here's John Mark. He's got to cook his own food. He's got to sleep on the ground in a tent. He's got to walk miles every day and deal with rejection. Pack up supplies, unpack supplies, put it on the back and pack supplies and walk. He's going from city to city on this itinerant ministry. Maybe he missed the servants. Maybe he missed somebody else preparing his food for him. Uh, Barnabas, I need to go back and check on my mom. She is a widow. It's a good excuse for a little lad who just wants to see his mommy. And we're not talking about 15, 16, 17-year-old. We're talking about a young man. John Mark is. Just got homesick. That's one possibility. He just got homesick. There's a second possibility. 
I want you to notice something from the book of Acts. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 25, read a few phrases with me here. Acts 12, verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. Chapter 13, There were at the church at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod Tetrarch, and Saul, listed last, Verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and they reached the word, they preached the word of God. Verse 7, um, Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God from them. Then we get down to chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions. Do you notice the change? Do you notice the change? Up till chapter 13, verse 13, what is it? Barnabas. Saul. Barnabas listed first. Saul's listed second. Chapter 13, verse 13, what do we see? Paul and his companions. Barnabas and John Mark was there. That's not incidental, folks. That's not an accident. From this point forward, it would be Paul and his companions. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Titus. Paul and John Mark. Paul and Silas. From this point forward, it's Paul and his companions. He's listed first. Up to this point, Barnabas has been listed first. It may be that the Apostle Paul assumed this leadership role when this confrontation with Elimus came about. Paul became the spokesman. Paul blinded Elimus. And from this point forward, Paul is the uncontested leader. Luke surely seems to indicate that in how he talks about the ministry. Up until now, it's Barnabas and Paul. And remember, Barnabas is John Mark's cousin. So it just may be that John Mark was fine about ministering alongside of Paul under Barnabas, but not alongside of Barnabas under Paul. I didn't sign up to take orders from that guy. I signed up to serve under my cousin Barnabas. And from this point forward, Paul's in charge. Paul's listed first. It's Paul and his companions. It just may be that John Mark said, you know what? It's enough. If we're going to switch leadership on this journey, if i got to take orders from that guy, it's over. I'm fine taking orders and serving under Barnabas. He's my cousin, but not under Paul. Bad enough, and he bails. That could be. There's a third possibility, and it's kind of related to the second one. It may be that John Mark is a good Jew, good Orthodox Jew, not many years removed from the conversion of Cornelius, just simply has an issue with Gentile evangelism. The Apostle Paul has targeted now, walked right into the proconsul's office, into his arena there, and he preaches the gospel directly to him. No changing it or altering it or anything. He just targets evangelism right toward a Gentile. It may be that John Mark was fine with going to the synagogues and winning God-fearing Jews and God-fearing Gentiles to salvation, but not just targeting the average Gentile. It may be that John Mark realized, you know what, I'm not comfortable with Gentiles. I'm a Jew. We've always hated Jews and Gentiles, and I just have a problem with this. So if you're going to target Gentiles like that, I'm gone. Maybe he left knowing that since Paul was the leader of the journey now, there's going to be a lot more targeting Gentiles for evangelism than there had been up to that point. Could be that he just bailed. Uncomfortable with Gentile evangelism. He's had enough. There's a fourth possibility, and this is what I think is probably the most likely reason that he bailed. If you look on the back of your bulletin insert, you'll notice that on the map there's a green area that's marked Galatia. In that Galatian area is Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, which the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are about to visit those three cities. When they get back from this first missionary journey, sometime before the beginning of Acts chapter 15, 
Paul and Paul writes a letter to those Galatian churches, the churches that are in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And this is the book of Galatians. It's the first book that we have that the Spirit of God has preserved for us that the Apostle Paul wrote. And we have a little hint as to what was going on at this time, not from anything in the book of Acts, but from something that Paul writes in the book of Galatians. Chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, You know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. The Apostle Paul writes to those churches and he says, it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. You know that. And he says, my bodily condition you didn't loathe, you didn't despise, but you received me like you would receive Christ Himself. And you loved me so much you were willing to pluck out your own eyes and give them to me. What bodily condition is it that the Apostle Paul would have had that would have pushed him up into the regions of Galatia and driven him there so that he would write to the churches there, it was because of that illness that we came and preached the Gospel to you. May I suggest to you that it was malaria. The whole Pamphylian area on that south coast of the Mediterranean Sea was mosquito-ridden, malaria-infested area. Now when they stepped off the boat in Perga, and they're standing there in Pamphylia, to the north are the Taurus Mountains, 3,600 foot elevation climb, steep mountains. 100 miles from Perga, up a winding road that went to dizzying heights along steep cliffs through narrow passes infested with robber bands. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I was in danger of robbers. Probably this journey that he's talking about. An area that was notorious for its bandits and its robbers, which plagued that path from Perga to Pisidian Antioch. Now, if Paul was infested with malaria, and Sir William Ramsey notes that there are strains of malaria which cause these recurring headaches that are debilitating and prostrating, as well as the fevers. And if it may be that these debilitating headaches were Paul's thorn in the flesh, the ramifications of catching malaria on this first trip. If he caught malaria in Perga of Pamphylia, then he would have needed to get somewhere quickly, somewhere dry, somewhere cooler, somewhere of a better elevation. And they would have been staring at a 3,600-foot climb with all of their gear. And Paul as the leader would have been saying, we've got to get to where it's cooler, we've got to get to where it's drier. The only place is up in the regions of Galatia on the other side of those Taurus mountains. We've got to make that climb. And it may be that John Mark, standing there looking at those mountains, said, forget it. I'm gone. I've stuck through thick and thin, but I'm done with this. i got a near-death apostle on my hands, and you want me to pack him 3,600 feet up there to a cooler, drier region? I've had enough. If that's what happened, that would explain why Paul said to them, it was because of that bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you. That's what drove them up into Galatia. Probably malaria with recurring headaches, prostrating, debilitating. Maybe it was all of those things that caused John Mark to leave. Homesick, wanting his mommy, packing his supplies, gets through Cyprus. He encounters this demon-possessed Bar-Jesus, this Elimus, and sees him stricken blind. And Paul targets evangelism the Gentile, and he can't figure that out. And they sail from there, and all of a sudden he realizes, Paul's the new leader, not Barnabas. I signed up for Barnabas, not Paul. And they step foot on Perga, and Paul comes down with malaria, and 
He's looking 3,600 feet up, and Paul says, we got to go up there, I'm going to die. And John Mark says, forget it. Enough is enough, I'm gone. And he leaves. Maybe it was a combination of those things, or all of them. But Luke just says, John Mark left him and returned to Jerusalem. I want you to notice something. I think there's a lesson here just in how Luke reports this. Luke had every opportunity to cast John Mark in a bad light here, especially from what he did to his hero, the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He doesn't take a pot shot at Mark. just reports the facts. Luke's not inter- interested in character assassination. Luke's not interested in telling us why it was that he left. I think that if Luke had told us why it was that he left, we would view John Mark in a whole different light. We'd look down on him even worse. Friends, it's possible for you just to report facts about a situation without assassinating the people who are involved or assigning blame to the people who are involved. That's what Luke does. Here are the facts. Here are what you need to know. And I'm not going to assign blame to this. And second, I want you to notice also, and this is a good lesson, there are going to be difficult times in ministry when people will leave you. They'll bail on you. And it'll hurt. You'll feel like they deserted you. The men and women that you expect to stand with you through thick and thin, you expect them to be there, to back you up, to cover your back, and they're gone. Sometimes for legitimate reasons. Maybe he was homesick. Other times for illegitimate reasons, just because they bailed. And it will hurt you. And it will hurt you deeply. And you'll just wonder to yourself, how could they do something like that to me? And you just can't quite reach that knife they buried in your back on the way out the door. And it hurts. But God hasn't promised you an easy go, has He? There'll be times when people will bail on you. There'll be times when ministry will get so tough, so hard, so arduous, so down. What do you do? Look at verse 14. But going on from Perga. (laughs) Those are the most beautiful words in the whole passage. They went on from Perga. And they didn't stop to preach the Gospel there. They do on the way back. I think they were pressing on from Perga because they needed to get into the mountains because of Paul's bodily illness. They went on from Perga. You just keep going. The Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I've called them. And John Mark bails. And so now they've got to make this trek up that mountainside up toward Pisidian Antioch, a hundred miles, carrying all of their supplies, no longer spread evenly between three people, but now two people. And one of them is bodily ill. He's sick. And that hurts the worst. That's why Paul said, we're not taking him along. He deserted us. I think he deserted the Apostle Paul when Paul needed him most. And it hurt, and it hurt deeply. But Paul knew, we got to move on. You know what I love about the Apostle Paul? His grit. His grit. The man never stopped. He just went and went and went. And Paul knew the Spirit of God has said, go. And if we quit, it's nothing short of blatant disobedience. We have no option. We're going to Pisidian Antioch, even if I die on the way. That was the Apostle Paul. He was tenacious. And the ironic thing is that the most fruitful ministry that lay ahead of the Apostle Paul was on the other side of those mountains. That's where the fruit really comes. That's where the good things really start to pour in. And if he had quit in Perga, he would have never saw any of that. He would have never experienced any of that. But he persevered. 
Now that's the problem that he encountered. Second, I want you to notice the pattern that he followed. Verse 14, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Now, Paul says it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you. So they arrive in Pisidian Antioch. Luke doesn't mention that bodily illness, but Paul does in Galatians chapter 4. And they don't stay home from the synagogue. Fever or no fever, headaches or no headaches, we're going there to witness. We're going into the synagogue and we're going to do what the Lord has called us to do. Whatever our bodily condition is, whatever illness that I'm dealing with, whatever disappointment that I'm carrying with me, we're going into the synagogue. Because it's in the synagogue that the Apostle Paul would find people who are interested in spiritual truth. It's in the synagogue that he would find a copy of the Scriptures. It's in the synagogue that he would find men and women whose hearts had been prepared for his gospel by the Word of God. And it's in the synagogue that he would find his most receptive soil for his message. doesn't mean that Paul never targeted people or unbelievers outside of the synagogue. He certainly did. But it was in the synagogue where he could maximize his effort for maximum effectiveness. And his pattern was to go into the synagogues and to preach Christ. Remember, that's what he did when he landed in Salamis on the island of Cyprus. That's what he does here in Pisidian Antioch. And what I want you to notice about the Apostle Paul is that he did not target, he did not target Roman officials. What's he just done? He's just led the governor of the island of Cyprus to Christ. Now that's quite a spiritual accomplishment to add to your resume, is it not? Imagine that you're responsible for leading the governor of Idaho to Christ. He's called you into his office. You've gone into this Capitol building. You've sat down in the office of the governor and you've led him to faith in Christ. Now you might say to yourself, you know what? I'm done with all this chump change stuff in the synagogues. Show me the Capitol building. That's where I want to go. And you might stop witnessing to the people at the rescue mission and the people at work and just say, hey, I'm going after governors, senators, councilmen, the president. You show me the upper echelon of society. Those are the people that I'm witnessing to. All these plebes and serfs that live down here in the synagogue, I'm done with them. Sometimes you and I have that attitude. We don't even know it. We leave one church because the Lord moves us on geographically to some other place, and so we go into another church and we say to ourselves, hey man, I was a elder, a deacon, song leader, Sunday school teacher, the head of a ministry in my previous church. And once these people realize how important I am, then I'll serve in the capacity that I deserve to serve in. But I'm done with all this chump change, this low stuff on the bottom of the scale. I worked my way up the ladder once, I'm not working my way up the ladder again. Not Paul. Fresh off of leading the governor of the island of Christ, he goes right back into the synagogues to preach Christ to the common man. That's Paul. Never let his accomplishments, never let his achievements go to his head, inflate him or puff him up. Just a humble servant. That's his pattern. Third, I want you to notice how he sees the opportunity. Verse 15, after reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, that is to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So they go into the synagogue, they sit through what would be a typical synagogue service. Opening prayer, the reading of the law, the reading of the prophets. They had two readings, one from the law, one from the prophets. And then a few people, leadership of the synagogue, would stand up and usually teach on the subject of the Scripture reading, on the passages that were read. And so the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are sitting in the synagogue. And it was customary in those days, if you had a traveling rabbi or a visiting rabbi like the Apostle Paul, you would ask him to address the people in your synagogue. Well, here's a man who's been trained by Gamaliel back in Jerusalem. Here's a man who's been trained by the best mind in all of Judaism. And he's got to be one of the best minds in all of Judaism. A traveling rabbi, and so they recognize Paul and Barnabas sitting there, and then the service is complete. They send to them and say, if you have a word of exhortation, say it. 
In other words, they say, would you like to preach? Yeah, I never thought you'd ask. Sure, I'd like to preach. And then Paul stands up and motioning with his hands for the people to be quiet. He says to them, and then what we have in verse 16 through verse 41 is one of three long sermons that Luke records for us that we're going to get into next week. But what I want you to notice this morning is how Paul was ready. In season and out of season. Paul didn't say, you know what, I don't have anything prepared this morning, so I'll pass. In season, out of season, the man was ready. Ready with a message. Always prepared. So the opportunity presented itself, would you like to preach today? Sure, I'd like to preach today. And he stands up and he opens up the Old Testament Scriptures and he begins to proclaim to them the Word of God from the very Old Testament, always prepared, always ready, ever presently ready to share the Gospel. That was the Apostle Paul. Without notice and without notes, he preaches. Stands up and preaches. Because he had a message. And he knew what the message was and the message didn't change. And he could preach the same message in Salmas, the same message in Paphos, the same message in Perga, and the same message in Pisidian Antioch. I will confess it's a little bit easier if you're a traveling pastor or a preacher to say, do a message on the fly when you've got three or four and you're always in a different church. But Paul was always ready. Friends, you're starting to see in the Apostle Paul what it is that made him the man of influence that he was. You're starting to see those character traits in Paul that allowed him to have an impact that reaches even to our day. Character traits that you and I look at and we say, this is why apart from Jesus Christ there has never lived a more influential human being than the Apostle Paul. Never. What are those character traits? They're character traits that you and I would do well to model. First of all, he was tenacious in the face of incredible opposition, in the face of incredible disappointment, personal pain and emotional toil. He did not quit. He persevered. He kept on going, no matter what happened. Friends, I ask you, are you so committed to your ministry, so committed to your walk with Christ, and so committed to your service to Him, that no matter what disappointment presents itself, no matter what difficulty comes, that you'll press on. And you'll do what God has called you to do. No matter how tough it gets. He was tenacious. Second, he was consistent. Going from spiritual victory to spiritual victory, the Apostle Paul never let it affect him. He just kept doing what God had called him to do. He went into the synagogues and he preached Christ. And third, he was ready. He was tenacious, he was consistent, and he was always ready. Friends, those are the things that mark men and women who make their mark on time and on eternity. Tenacious, consistent, and he was ready. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and for our time in it this morning. We ask God that you would give to us the grace to model these character qualities. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And he is definitely an individual whose character, whose life, and whose approach to life and ministry is worth modeling. We pray that you would, by your grace, work in us a work that makes us men and women who are tenacious and persevering, consistent in our walk with you, and always ready to share the gospel with those who need it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.